Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and this week, talking about menstruation. Period. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds, and today you've got me, Shayna Roth, senior producer at Slate. Later in the show, I'll be joined by author and professor of anthropology, Kate Clancy. I personally do not have a very specific memory of getting my period for the first time, which given how many times it has been used to signify a very important rite of passage in books and movies and such is very surprising to me. I mean, what person, especially a girls of a certain age, don't remember the scene in My Girl when Veda gets her period and thinks she's dying? Well, he just left. What's wrong? I'm hemorrhaging. What do you mean you're hemorrhaging? I don't want, and I don't need your help, but I need to move. Did this happen in the bathroom? How old are you? I'm 11 and a half. It's okay. Come on upstairs. We have to have a little talk. But what I do remember with painful clarity is the humiliation and stress of being on my period while in middle school and high school. I remember spending way too much time thinking about how I would smuggle a tampon out of a classroom as though I was Pablo Escobar figuring out what to do with all of my drugs. Up my sleeve? What if I was wearing short sleeves that day? Can't go in my pocket. It'll bulge and look weird. Could I maneuver my body enough to get it from my purse to my waistband and then cover it up with my shirt without anyone seeing what I was doing? And you may be wondering, why not just take your purse to the bathroom? And that was an absolute no, because then everyone would know you were on your period. And God forbid anyone even consider that you might be going through one of the most normal things to happen to people with ovaries since time began. It was embarrassing. But why? 20 years later, I was at the bakery digging around for my wallet and a pad fell out. And I was instantly embarrassed and even more so embarrassed for the male cashier. I get anxiety when I see that my grocery shopper is a man and I have my ultra tampons ordered. Why, 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 after decades of getting my period almost every month, am I still worried about people, especially men, knowing that Aunt Flo has come to town? I know I'm not the only one who has felt this way. And that got me thinking, is this shame and embarrassment that's ingrained in our culture over our periods the reason or one of the reasons why healthcare for women and gender minorities in this country sucks? Kate Clancy has been thinking about and researching menstruation for years. Her new book, Period, explores the history of our cultural attitudes and norms surrounding that time of the month and why it has been so harmful. After a short break, Kate is going to join me to dig into why we should never feel the need to hide a tampon up our sleeves again. 
Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. We get you new episodes every Thursday morning. And while you're there, you should definitely check out our other episodes, too, like last week's about finding love without romance. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Shana Roth, and I'm joined now by Kate Clancy, author of Period. Kate, welcome to The Waves. Thanks so much for having me. So menstruation and menstruating bodies and periods is something that you have spent many, many years digging into. What would you say is the number one thing that particularly Western society gets wrong about periods and menstruating? So one of the things that I find really interesting, if you think back to any of what we learned about what a menstrual cycle is, is we learn it's 28 days long. There's a first half, there's ovulation, there's a second half. It's very tidy. If we sort of stray from that too much, the automatic assumption is that something's wrong. So, you know, we're allowed a little bit of variability, 26 to 35 days or something like that. But in general, this, there's this idea that estrogen is supposed to do something, progesterone is supposed to do something, and um, there's an expectation it should always do that. The two things to understand about that are, one, our environment plays a role in how our hormones and menses ends up looking, and, and that itself is adaptive. So you want to be responsive to environment. You don't want to just be menstruating every single month, every 28 days, forever. Um, if your environment isn't supportive of reproduction, if you're not eating enough, if you have too many immune challenges, if you're experiencing a lot of psychosocial stressors, those are the kinds of things that should influence and change your experience of your cycle. The other piece is just that like variability is like a really cool and interesting thing that bodies do, right? Like what we should be characterizing as normal is actually much huger. Like the tent for normal should actually be incredibly expansive. And then the tent for pathological should actually be kind of small um, if we're really understanding the biology right. And so a lot of us who think there's something wrong with us, a lot of times it's not. And it's just what we're experiencing is the normal variation that means that we respond to the world around us just as we should. Your book, period, does a great job of digging into the different systems that promote the idea that menstruation is shameful in Western culture, especially the patriarchy, obviously, but also white supremacy, the general nature of how Western medicine has been structured from the beginning. I was wondering if you could read a specific section from your book that I think really hones in on that. Sure. Many older ethnographies and historical works describe menstrual taboos as phenomena universal across cultures, aimed at protecting the community from the evils of menstruation. The purpose of menstruation is to shame, to serve as punishment for women's wickedness, or to purge the impure from the body. 
and menstrual taboos function to contain the pollution. These ideas persist in the Western popular imagination because they align with our own interpretation of menstruation. Now, when I read that part, I couldn't help but remember when I was growing up in Catholic school, we were told that women get their periods and they hurt, cramps and what have you, because it was punishment for Eve's original sin because she tempted Adam with the apple. And so to me, I was really just thinking back to these sort of crazy menstrual taboos that that really penetrate the culture. Can you talk more about that? So there is a lot of variability in how different cultures understand or think about menstruation. And what's tricky is that we've ended up with this very uniform thought around how this all looks. And it's just because, again, of the Western lens or sort of the Western viewpoint is that if if lots of Westerners who are anthropologists go into other cultures and take our own perspective on things and look at what they're doing, we're going to interpret it with that lens. Um, or people are not going to necessarily trust us as we're going in and, you know, being incredibly damaging with our extractive properties and everything. And so we might not get a straight answer. And so, you know, for all sorts of reasons, we've developed this idea that menstruation is taboo in, in a bad sense, that it's dirty or bad. But really what we see when we look at the variability is we see um, that menstruation can be sacred, that the time of menstruation can be a time of relaxation, and it can be a time of community. It can be a time to remove oneself from some of the drudgery of certain types of domestic work. It can be a chance to slow down and eat really yummy food with friends. There are a lot of different ways that we can think about menstruation, and they don't all have to be the same. Yeah. And I feel like one of the reasons why we don't focus on menstruation as being like a great and positive time of the month is because we still have these ingrained taboos, which we now see sort of really perpetuated through popular culture. You know, there's a really classic scene in the movie Superbad where a woman has her period and is essentially free bleeding and she dances with Jonah Hill's character, oh, Seth, and he responds that he's going to throw, to throw up. up. Someone period on my fucking leg. Oh, shit. What the fuck do I do? I've never before seen that in my life. This is so disgusting. Yes, it is. Yes. I'm going to go get Bill. He's got to check this shit oh, out. Oh, fuck yeah. Bill? And then, of course, there's the original period scene in Carrie where the protagonist and eventual telekinetic Carrie gets her period and has no idea what's going on. Bill, what are you doing? What are you doing? Carrie, she just got her period. Just got her period. What are you doing? In your research, how important is pop culture in sort of the larger role of menstruation comfort? It's really important. And in some ways, I wish it wasn't, because I think there are ways in which in science in particular, we develop this view of ourselves as somehow above or more objective than other professions. But we're not. We're just as subjective as any others. And in fact, the ways in which we try to tell ourselves we're, we're objective sometimes make bias creep in even more strongly. Um, I don't think we ever should be trying to get away from bias or lived experience, but I think awareness of it can really help. And so, you know, if pop culture, if the broader cultural conceptions of a given trait are negative, well, then that's going to creep into the science. Talking about it creeping into the science, it seems as though the societal embarrassment plays a role in healthcare for women and menstruating people. The fact that we are ashamed of this or are sort of widely embarrassed by this. I mean, even though it's a very key part to women's health. Talk about how that has interplayed and how 
it has affected women and their ability to get good health care. It seems to make it a lot harder to talk about it with healthcare providers, and it seems as though healthcare providers are a lot less likely to initiate conversations around this. Um, there have been studies of pediatricians, and when you compare women and men pediatricians, which for the most part we can assume mean pediatricians who've probably menstruated before and those who have not, we can see the women pediatricians are more likely to initiate conversations around menstruation, are more likely to know some of the basic facts around menstruation, safe tampon use, and more. And the men, the male providers don't know these things and don't volunteer these things. They don't initiate these conversations. And that means if you have a, a man pediatrician um, and you yourself are a menstruating person, you might be getting less good care. The other way that this shows up is that the only time we really seem to talk about menstruation is how it relates to fertility. So, you know, in addition to the fact that you often get weighed, which is not necessarily something that's relevant to healthcare, at a doctor's appointment, you're often asked, when was your last menstrual period? And they just want to know whether or not you're pregnant. Whereas it would actually be really useful to think about menstruation as another vital sign that might actually tell us about a lot of other elements of our health, including pain and other sort of chronic lived experiences. Talk a little bit more about the science aspect of it, the research of all of this. Are women's issues such as menstruation getting the attention that they need? They definitely are not. Um, it is incredibly hard to get funding to study endometriosis, fibroids, adenomyosis, chronic pelvic pain, normal menstruation. It's incredibly hard to get studies to even just develop methodologies to allow for non-invasive measures. Like we have a blood test to tell us if we have prostate cancer, right? We don't have blood tests or other types of biomarker research or men menstrual effluent. So that's just like your actual menses, collection protocols or other ways for us to just have basic understanding of what's going on there and being able to diagnose people without having to go in there and clip out a piece of your endometrium with a really painful biopsy. So just at every step of the way, when we've had a chance <laughs> to just understand some of the basic functioning, it's like we've gone, you know, the other way. And I've just said, no, I think we need more money on something else that, you know, we've decided is way more important. We're going to take a break here. But if you want to hear more from Kate and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment where today we're talking about inclusive language and why it's so much better and actually much more accurate than you probably thought. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash the waves plus. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Shana Roth, and I'm with author and anthropologist Kate Clancy. We are talking all about menstruation, and we really want to focus on how to make periods less embarrassing in this segment. So all the research and study of menstruation, while bad enough for menstruating women, is really, really bad when we get into people who menstruate who do not identify as women. What problems does this group run into and how do we improve both the research and the embarrassment aspect for gender minorities? There's some really great research just starting to happen around this work. And um, I think one of the first things to notice is that there are a range of responses people of various genders have to menstruation, uh, ranging from a little bit of embarrassment 
to a sense of power, to gender dysphoria, and really feeling quite terrible um, around menstruation. You know, again, there's a little of this work being done right now. It's really wonderful work. I really wish we paid more attention to the experiences of people who are gender minorities and how and what their experience of menstruation is. But I do think something we could do that would be intensely helpful would be to do more work to kind of de-gender menses in a lot of ways. It doesn't have to be seen as a feminine process. There is nothing about it that is any particular gender, right? We are the ones who are applying gender to it. So um, I think when we can be more specific in our language, like, you know, talking about people with uteruses, that that's actually much better. It's also just more accurate because, um, you know, if we're talking about um, a person who is menstruating versus formerly menstruating versus someone with a hysterectomy who has menstruated in the past, these are also very different physiological conditions. And so it actually is worthwhile for us to be specific about what group of people we're talking about when we're talking about different elements of menstruation and who it may or may not affect. And so to me, that's sort of the big thing is that like, if you want to get the science right, it actually isn't accurate to just talk about women, right? If you want to get the science right, it's actually more accurate to think more about a broader group of people who might also be having these experiences. When we do that, we begin to respect all people who have these experiences, which then brings them into the conversation. What can we do to, I love this term they use, degender. And you talked about the language aspect of it, which we will get into more in our Slate Plus segment. But what are some other things that scientists or even everyday people can do to help degender menstruation? I think starting to think about it more as simply a physiological process that occurs in this organ that not everybody has. You know, I have like an extra bone in the back of my knee, (laughs) I forgot, I'm already forgetting what it's called. Um, But like, that's not uncommon, but it's not gendered just because it's something I have that not everybody has. And I happen to be a cisgender woman. Breathing, digesting, (laughs) all of these are just, you know, uh, excreting other things like peeing and pooping, right? We are talking about lots of things that we all experience. And I think the more that we just enter into a conversation about them with curiosity. I I think the more we can just think about them as processes and I don't know, find that they're actually kind of cool and fun to think about um, when we gender them, especially when you feminize something. Um, Unfortunately in our culture, what that does is it devalues it. And I think menstruation, well, I think feminine stuff should of course be deeply valued like any gender. Um, But I also think that menses should be deeply valued. So I think when we actually separate them, it allows us to actually lift both of them up. You have a section in your book about how women and gender minorities have their specific concerns consistently or constantly downplayed. And you say, quote, Triviality is a core construct of the paternalistic way many systems approach women and gender diverse people. So how does this along with the everyday stressors women and gender diverse people experience, play a role in their menstrual cycles? And how do we improve this? You know, when you think about who it is that has uh, run a whole lot of sort of the Western conception of science, there's a lot of science out there. There's a lot of knowledge out there. So I'm just, I want to be clear that what I'm talking about is, and because of my own research area, um, I'm focusing specific, specifically on Western science. But like, sorry to say, dudes are the ones who have kind of controlled a lot of Western science for, I don't know, a whole bunch of centuries. And so for that reason, the kinds of questions they have chosen to ask, the kinds of things they're curious about, and the methods and measures they've also come up with have come from their range of experiences and their understanding. And so, you know, when you think about certain types of phenomena like chronic pain, 
pelvic pain. Symptoms that we see as diffuse or hard to understand, like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, things like that. When you think about those range of experiences that we know typically tend to cluster more into women and gender minorities as people who tend to experience them more, I think we need to ask ourselves, well, do we see these as harder to measure because they really are harder to measure or because over the last couple of centuries, all of our technologies and our developments have all been about measuring different types of things that actually are kind of masculine and come from a particular masculine point of view. It could be that with 200 years of women being in control of clinical medicine, we actually long ago would have seen these as concretely defined, very clear and easy to understand phenomena. And there might be other things that we see as much harder to understand, like what's with erections? Those are weird, (laughs) right? And I wonder if maybe one of the big ways to fix this is to have more women in STEM and in the sciences and in the medical field. I mean, that almost seems like the the sort of duh point. How do we actually make that happen? I do think that part of the answer is definitely getting far more lived experience diversity into science. And I think a lot of that comes from increasing the number of women and gender minorities, increasing the number of um, Black, Indigenous, people of color, Um, and more, right? I think in all of those ways, yes, that can be supported. I think the other thing is that the structure themselves, the the structure itself of science has to change. So the other big hat that I wear is I study sexual harassment in the sciences. And I've done that for over 10 years and um, helped co-author a National Academies report on this topic. I've flown all over the country consulting on it. It's a big part of what I do. And it's because the structure of science is actually part of where the greatest harms are faced. The incentive structures are around publishing first, publishing the most, um, creating a workaholic culture that is really damaging and harmful to a lot of different people. And it's, again, not just bad for the people who are in science, it's actually bad for the science itself. If we're always trying to be first, we're going to take certain shortcuts in the quality of the work that we do, or we're always going to look for the largest or most visible effect or things like that, right? So there are ways in which the, the incentive structures of how to succeed in science, how to get funding, how to get rewarded, are exactly the kinds of structures that actually produce a lot of harm in asking a lot of cool questions around menstruation. I wanted to ask you about your research on sexual harassment in science. I'm just curious if you can just in general talk us through some of the broad strokes of what you've studied and and what you've found. All of this has been in collaboration with lots and lots of other wonderful scientists, I should say. Um, So one of the first collaborations was with biological anthropologists, and we looked at uh, field experiences. Field work is a big part of a lot of different scientific disciplines, and sexual harassment is pretty rampant in those settings. There's this phrase, what happens in the field stays in the field. And so those kinds of things are things that we first picked up on is that, you know, you have these like off-campus experiences that are really problematic. Then from there, people started bringing to us, well, what about conferences? What about lab work? What about study groups? And um, as we expanded this work, not just from the field sciences, but into astronomy and planetary science, undergraduate physics, and more, it became really clear that sexual harassment is incredibly pervasive. Um, About three quarters of women experience it. But then also when you start to break down different categories of lived experience, you see some people are more at risk um, or more targeted, I should say, than others. So um, women of color experience the most sexual harassment, followed by white women, then men of color, white men in one of our studies. Um, In another of our studies where we looked at experiences of LGBTQ people, we saw that in particular physical forms of harassment, um, so forms of assault, 
If you are an LGBTQ person, you are twice as likely to experience physical assault in the workplace as a scientist than a cis woman. So already the rate is kind of high if you're a cis woman, right? And then you just double it if you're LGBTQ. Um, so these kinds of findings, I think, have been really important in making it clearer that this lived experience is really is really common. And we've also done some work to show how harmful it is that it leads people to take jobs that are lateral or steps down or leave science altogether. The last piece that I think is really important, and I think this, again, gets to sort of this bigger question of diversity in science and who gets to do science and who gets to sort of create the reward systems and incentive structures, is that some of the most harmful kinds of sexual harassment, and this actually gets to one of the chapters of my book too, are the really subtle ones. Some of the um, the things that are really frequent and pervasive, the small slights, the little times where you never get called by your appropriate title, or um, you know the administrators will never help you with your grants, but the dudes who are constantly feigning incompetence get all the help. You know, so the little subtle things that are like small rudenesses in the workplace that are gendered, those are in some ways more harmful than the really severe forms of harassment. And that's because when something really severe and obvious happens, of course, that is terrible, right? If somebody solicits you for sex in the workplace or says you won't get this promotion unless you whatever, those kinds of things are terrible, but it's easier to externalize it right? It's easier to say, oh, wow, that person is a jerk, or this is a harmful thing that this person is doing to target me. All those little things, the little rudenesses, the little sexual harassments, they erode your sense of self, they erode your sense of worth, and they make you wonder if you really belong in that workplace. That's the stuff that keeps people, that makes people not be able to bring their full selves to work and not do their best work. And in the end, that means that some of the people that could be doing some of the coolest, most innovative research, creating the best technologies to measure some of the things we've still not been able to measure, that those folks are no longer scientists. Yeah. And I feel like this definitely gets back to what we were talking about with needing more women and gender minorities in the sciences studying this stuff in order to make these breakthroughs and to ensure that when people menstruate, they're not so embarrassed. feels like this is one of those things that's also sort of keeping those populations away. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we joke in anthropology a lot that it's a very navel-gazing discipline that any type of anthropologist, but I'm a biological one, you know, we sort of look at our own experience and that's what motivates or makes us think about the kinds of research we might want to do. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? If you have a diversity of people who are practicing science, then their lived experience is informing the kind of work that they do. Um, and then that means we have more opportunities to understand other things. We've never been successful in my lab at getting funding to study pain and endometriosis. You know, we applied for funding and kept getting denied. But that project came out of the fact that there was a colleague of mine who experienced lots of pain with endometriosis and had particular expertise as well as lived experience that really informed the project in incredibly important ways. Without that person, right, that project couldn't exist. And so when we keep sort of moving to the side or belittling all of these, all of these tiny slights that add up, you know, the death by a thousand cuts sort of thing that happens with racial microaggressions as well as sexual microaggressions, um, we really deny the fact that science has become a pretty hostile place to work. And if we want science to be good and to be a public good that helps lots of people, we need to make it the kind of place that more people can safely do their best work. Earlier, we talked about how historically menstruation has been treated in movies and TV and how that has impacted societal feelings about it. But in 2020, HBO aired a British show called I May Destroy You. And it had maybe the first 
honest and real depiction of a period scene. The main character, Arabella, goes to have sex with a man and she tells him, I'm on my period. And he says, that's fine. And they lay down a towel and he's not freaked out by her pad, by her tampon, or even the blood clot that he pulls out while he's fingering her. Oh, what is that? Oh, it's a blood clot. Oh. I've never seen anything like that before. Yeah, I don't think they're on the high streets or anything. Oh, so soft. When it comes out, can you feel it? And what I love so much about that scene is just how incredibly real this was from top to bottom. From her saying... I'm a heavy bleeder and then having the old pad plus tampon to, I mean, even what the blood clot looks like. It wasn't like we see in pad commercials where it's blue dye being poured into a pad for reasons that escape me every time. And there's also been, you know, very frank discussions and depictions of a young girl dealing with getting her period while trying to survive in a post-apocalypse in The Last of Us. I mean, she gets a menstrual cup. Do these types of depictions, while still fairly rare, give you hope? They absolutely do. I love depictions that normalize menstruation as something that is just part of the lived experience. And, you know, again, just as normal as eating, digesting, using the bathroom. These are all just part of what it means to be human. I think what also excites me about this is that the more that we recognize that biology is just part of us, right, that it's as embedded as culture, um, we'll stop separating out our brains and bodies as much as we do, you know, to be a good worker, <laughs> to be a good capitalist. There's all of this, like, sit at your desk for as many hours as possible, deny your body's experiences, don't pee, don't eat, <laughs> drink Soylent. You know, there's all of these ways that I, um, there has been, you know, I would say maybe in the last, like, 10, 20 years ago, increasing pushes to not be a body, And what these moments do is remind us that, you know, as we move into the future, as we imagine different utopias and dystopias, we're going to have to bring bodies along and we can't just pretend that they aren't there. Kate Clancy, author of the amazing book, period. I love a succinct one word title. Thank you so much for being on the waves. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by myself, Shayna Roth. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place. Thank you so much for being a Slate Plus member. And since you're a member, you get this weekly segment. Today, Kate and I are going to be talking all about language and the importance of language, particularly for gender minorities. Kate, you recommended this topic. Let's start with the broad question. Why is language so important when we are talking about menstruation and periods and really just health in general with LGBTQ plus persons? So language is part of culture. It's something that that is constantly evolving and it has a lot of power. There are ways that I talk about periods in 2023 that is entirely different than how I even talked about it in 2020. Um, and I think what's exciting to me about how language can change is that we can really feel less precious about it and less 
mad at ourselves if we're doing it wrong or, you know, like there's this way where I think if you just stay sort of light and curious and like, all right, this is what we're using now. Let's think about this. And like, what does it teach us that we're now using this term? To me, I think it's just really exciting to continue to kind of move with and evolve with language as it's evolving around us. How do you think language has evolved, let's say over the last like 10, 20, 30 years? Well, specifically around like issues of menstruation and and of the body, I would say that in a lot of ways we are getting more specific, which to me is actually really cool. For a while there, there was terminology like menstruators. So talking about people who menstruate, there was this like, we're going to talk about them as though they are menstruators. And then there was a bit of a reaction to that term where people were like, well, that's not the only thing I do. So why would you use a term that captures that as that like, that's my only process in my body? Um, So like menstruator, gestator, lactator, um, those represent a moment in time, but not that person's whole lived experience. So as you know, you've probably heard about like people first language, there's a lot of changes to talking about menstruation and other bodily processes that's more person first. So talking about um, people who menstruate. And, you know, in some ways that can seem cumbersome. And in other ways, I really like it because then it's specific to whatever it is you're talking about. Sometimes it's really important that I say people with uteruses. And sometimes it's important that I say people who menstruate. And those are not the same people because you can have postmenopausal people who no longer menstruate. You can have pre-menarchial people who do not yet menstruate and they all have uteruses, right? And so to me, all of this specific language that's person first allows us to be more clear about what we're actually talking about. That was just some of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to slate.com slash the waves plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash the waves plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 